Hello and welcome to the Caregivers Podcast, where we discuss all types of dementia and hopefully share some caregiver stories along the way. My name is Kimberly Scott. I am a part-time caregiver to my mother, who at the age of 65 was diagnosed with early onset dementia. And in 2019, I started Caregiver Stories to one, give caregivers a place to tell their stories when they're ready, to continue to educate others who don't know about dementia and what to do if their loved one is diagnosed. But the number one thing I want people to start doing is most importantly, having a tough conversation about the what if you are diagnosed and you can no longer care for yourself. So yes. that's what this podcast is all about. And if you'd like to tune into other episodes, you may do so by going to thatkimberly.com where you can choose which platform to listen to. And now that I got that out of the way, I'd like to introduce my guest today, Halda. Hello, Halda. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for inviting me. So give the listeners a little bit of background about yourself and your unique situation. Yes, I think I want to start by saying that my biggest struggle with dementia is uh, my sense of self. And in order to, to later tell you what's happening to it, I just want to tell you a little bit of, of my former selves. I was born in South Africa. I grew up on a farm. We were very poor, but privileged because we were white South Africans uh -huh. and I went to school but on the phone it's a big distance to high schools there was no high school so I went to boarding school at the age of 11 okay. and that for me when I think back is a big new self that that happened and then the others are like when I fell in love with Peter and married and had my children and then probably a very very important one is emigrating from South Africa to the United States. And the rest I did have like a career self. Mm -hmm. I had to retire from my job as a associate director of the gender studies program at the University of Utah. And then my very next step was the diagnosis of microvascular dementia. Okay, and what age was that? It was just before my 61st birthday. Oh, wow. And an MRI showed lesions that were not very advanced. But if you have microvascular dementia, the expectation is that it will just keep going. Mm -hmm. It's actually like little strokes that happen all the time. Sometimes you don't even know about them. So that has been happening a lot. And I have done very well until about a year ago, I would say. And I've lost a lot of my ability to function in the world and mm -hmm. need a lot of help. Okay. Well, I, I appreciate you being on this podcast and being open to having this conversation with me because I, I do know that keeping track of a conversation in this manner is definitely something that is not the easiest for someone with any form of dementia. So thank you again. Who was your original caregiver and what advice maybe would you give to other caregivers when you were diagnosed? Yes. My husband, Peter, is my main and only daily caregiver, okay. but my extended family are just amazing. If It's happened once or twice that he had to go out of town or just do something at night, and then they would 
either send one of the grandkids to babysit me or I would go to their house and just to, to have someone with me. But I can at times manage just by myself, like for a day or overnight, but sometimes I cannot. Mm-hmm. So he's my main caretaker and we have been together for 50 years. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Married for 48 of them. Okay. And so I have known him three times as long as I did not know him because we met when I was 17 and he 19. Okay. So he's just been totally part of my life. And that is continuing now that I have dementia. And everybody who knows him is astonished at how patient he is because he was not known as a patient person. My kids tease him about that and say, where did the old dad go? Where, who is this patient person? <laughs> so he is wonderful. He helps me with every little thing. You know, I still write a bit, but then I suddenly don't know how to open two screens on my computer. Uh-huh. You know, I just, I want them next to each other. I can't do it. And he just has just done it for me like three days in a row where every time he showed me, but when I had to do it again, I'd forgotten. Mm-hmm. I could write it down, but you know, you always think, oh, next time I'll know. Yeah. So that kind of thing helps me with all the time. I interrupt his day multiple times. Yes. I try not to do it, you know, sort of on impulse a lot, but there are many times of the day that he just helps me with things and so on. Mm-hmm. And of course, the emotional support is just indescribable of him and my children and my grandchildren. Well, kudos to him. And, you know, he definitely has a special place in my heart because I do understand that it is a special relationship, a special person that can handle that part of change in a relationship. I have met other caregivers that took care of their loved ones that were husband and wife. And it is a full-time labor of love. So I'm so happy to hear that. And I'm just speaking from the perspective of the person with dementia. Were you okay with telling people and being open to letting others know and taking the assistance from your family when you were diagnosed? Yes, I diagnosed myself with some form of memory or degenerative brain issue mm-hmm. before I went to my doctor. And even then, my family knew, and they had already by then noticed my memory lapses. So, for example, one day, it was an Easter Sunday, and the family were coming there with the grandkids and everybody. And I can't do so well with preparing meals, you know, at yeah. the So I made a casserole the night before that had to be baked. And then, you know, I set the table and everything. The kids came, everybody sitting around. And then when I was going to, you know, get the casserole, it was in the fridge. I'd forgotten to bake it. And so, and that's the first time that I sort of, I once, I fell apart because, you know, it wasn't a noisy falling apart. It was just sitting on a chair and just weeping without being able to stop. Mm-hmm. And that is where my kids really saw. And the forgetting is maybe not as bad, but the anxiety and shame that it brings mm-hmm. and recognition of people who love you that this we are now in a different place. Mm-hmm. So from that time onward, I wait until I had a diet. I told all my friends, close friends knew that I had 
severe memory issues. But I only told the wide world after my diagnosis. Okay. And I, I want as many people as possible to know for selfish reasons, because then I don't have to explain every time in Starbucks when I knock over the coffee yes. that I have memory issues. They just come up, smile, clean up, and I just leave a big tip. So. Yeah. I don't think that's selfish. I think that's just courtesy. I wish my mother would be more open to it. Her pride, she is Latin and is very prideful in not wanting people to take people's assistance and not wanting to let people know. And so I only want her close friends to know just so that they are understanding because I don't want, you know, anybody that she doesn't know to do something mischievous or, you know, ill will, but it's still hard. She doesn't always like to talk about it. So. Yeah. I also, I don't like to make big mistakes when I'm with friends, but they always take them with such great humor. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons that I'm open is because I had a science bachelor's degree in chemistry and physics and mathematics. And I was really raised with the scientific method. And so curiosity and investigating almost anything in my life is just part of who I am mm-hmm. and am. And so it helped me a lot to see the MRI with the spots on it because then I knew I wasn't like faking it or why anybody would fake it, I don't know. But yeah. <laughs> I knew there was something. And for me to see a material verification of something that is wrong helps me distance myself from it Mm -hmm. i don't i mean some people think that you know like dementia or doing anything like it's like a character flaw and then causes shame but if i know it's not a character flaw it is just part of my life and part of many people's lives it's much easier for me to have it yeah. When people say, oh, I'm sorry, I say, oh, don't be sorry. It's a cycle of life. You know, I'm blessed to be able to help her and I'm blessed that I caught it early on to where I could, you know, get power of attorney. I mean, the first two years I was crying a blumbering, you know, mess, but now I just go with the flow and I don't force things. So, and I, I try to teach her caregiver that hangs out with her during the daytime, the same thing. My stepdad still has a little hard time with it. I feel like my brother was in denial for the longest time. But other than that, you know, it is, it's a part of, of life. So good for you. What things do you want the people to know about dementia and someone who's living with dementia and yes. functioning with dementia? Yes, I think the most important thing that I did not know with a diagnosis is that I thought of dementia as memory loss. And of course, I knew it was short term. I thought you just can't remember what happened. But what I did not know is that it touches the heart of your personhood and your identity. Because I always was a person who could pull things together. And when I was at the university, I had students help somebody retrieve years of academic work that they hadn't finished to finish it to graduate, which which were not easy tasks, but I could always do it. And I knew my way around the world practically, but now I don't. And so what happens with dementia is 
it's not that your memories of your childhood or your husband goes, I mean, that doesn't affect me. It will affect mm-hmm. other people. But what affects me is that my husband and I, for example, talk about our calendar. We sit there with a calendar open. We put something in. And then another sentence away, so I say, you know, don't forget to put in that I have coffee with Susan. And he, we had just done it. And then you feel anxiety. And I don't believe in shame, but I have to say I feel it. Mm-hmm. And I fight it. I say to myself, you know, it is not something that I do deliberately. So you step into a world where you don't know how you are going to react to things. I, for example, I've been rude to people. It was also in a discussion about dementia. And this person was associated with an organization in Salt Lake City that, you know, has elder care, but it's in a wealthy neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And we live in a good neighborhood, but we also lived for many years in a very blue collar neighborhood. And we did it deliberately because we wanted to observe at least and experience life with people who did not have what what we had Mm -hmm. and I was so intent on telling her that you know the people in other organizations and the senior center in that area are so far less than they have that I was really rude I did not appreciate that you know that she is doing something astonishing and you know I later apologized but you know that is not how I think of myself Mm -hmm. I think of myself as a kind and considerate person But then I do things like that. And then I'm bewildered because you cannot trust yourself. Yeah. Would you say that there is something that in many of the podcasts that are in the conversations that I've had with folks that everybody's dementia is 100% different and their reactions are 100% different? Would you agree with that? Yes, I would. It's very personal. Mm -hmm. depending on background and experiences and so I know that we kind of touched on this and I definitely want to learn more about it, but you mentioned that you wanted when time comes to do assisted death and tell me more about that and what that entails. In our family, we have always spoken about all kinds of issues, you know, at breakfast, lunch and dinner, and with our young kids as I grew up. And so it was very natural for me to talk to the kids and also for them talking to me about this. And we thought about the future and I was grateful that my diagnosis was early enough that I could plan and participate in the decisions. And so we spoke about what it is that each of us values in life. Mm-hmm. And what would be for them at a point where they really would not want to live anymore. And we spoke about that. And in the process, we determined that we were not really different. Even our in-law kids were very much on the same level. And so the kids have always known that I would consider assisted suicide in some circumstances. And so we spoke about that. And Peter and I had spoken about it a lot even long before. And so we told them that it seems that there will be a time when I will reach a point where my quality of life is not what I think of as a worthwhile quality of life. Mm -hmm. And then in my documents that we drew up with a lawyer, I define a worthwhile quality of life for me. And the 
most important of that is being able to participate in a relationship. Mm. And I know that people with dementia that still physically are comforted by a presence or a voice. But to me, it is not something that I would want to visit upon my family because I've seen children's marriages break up, their kids start failing in school, financial ruin for some people. And although I don't think it will necessarily happen, those are things that I consider very important. So I have set down warning flags of when I think I would not want to live anymore. And if a bunch of them are, are red, then it would be time with me or without me to discuss our plans. And some of the things I have is, do I enjoy every day or am I miserable and depressed? Do I enjoy my relationships with my family, my friends, even if it's just sitting on a couch holding hands if I can't talk? Yeah. But is it something or am I mean or am I scared or do I scare them? Mm-hmm. And those are things I don't want. And also I feel, to me, it sounds horrible, but it's almost an aesthetic issue for me that when you think of human life, human life is the triumph of mind over matter for me. And I think we see that everywhere. We see this in science. Descartes were first separated. I think, therefore I am. So the part that, I, that doesn't think, the body, is not important. It's all in religion. You know, what we think and how we communicate with God is what is important, not the body. And I feel that on a deep level, from all levels of input and science, that I do not want to be a body where you put food on the one side and you have to clean up on the other side. And that's all I do all day. Yeah. I don't want my children to experience a life that becomes only that. So those are some of the things that I've put in my list. And all of them really have the same sense that they would also not want to be alive under those circumstances. I'm by no means suggesting it will be easy for them. Mm -hmm. I think it will be the hardest thing in their lives to do that, to help me with that. But they've all promised that they will. They've also promised that if one of them changes their mind, that they would not interfere with the people who are still carrying on with my request. That's a serious plan and a serious promise from your loved ones because I can say personally that I have joked. I joked with my nieces and my nephews that if that were to happen to me, watch what's happening to grandma, since I have no children, that one of them would have to fly me to the state that I could do assisted death or suicide, whatever the technical term is, because I don't want them to have to go through if I get to the point where I can no longer feed myself or like you said, if I'm angry and there's no quality of life of no happiness, no smiling, no, no nothing, then that's just not a way I want to live. In writing my book, I read so much. And one of the things I remember is Atul Gawande. He's a neurosurgeon mm-hmm. and his father was also a neurosurgeon and he was going to go through surgery where if one little thing went wrong, he could lose all his brain capacity. So before the surgery, his father as a doctor told him that he did not want to live in that way. And so the the son said, well, what is the criteria for you? So he said, the father said, as long as I can sit on the couch 
eat an ice cream and watch football, life is good for me. <laughs> Pretty basic and simple, but happy. <laughs> wow. That is something that if more people were to have those conversations with their loved ones and get them comfortable with it in advance, I feel like we would all be more prepared because I know it's not something that we're all expecting. I was not expecting it to happen when it happened. But if my mom and I had even just had one conversation about it, you know, everybody wants to talk about death first and not about what if you live and good for you for having a plan for the, what if you're not enjoying life and living as you, you know, are living with dementia, good for you for setting the plan, putting it in place and having everyone agree to it because it's definitely a conversation that I want people to start having. Yes. I can only say I could not have done anything without my family. Mm -hmm. And my friends also all know they plan that for themselves too. And so what you were saying that we should talk about it more. And that reminded me that where I live in Utah is considered the highest church attendance mm -hmm. in the United States. And people refer to it as the most religious state. And even in this state, church-going people are in favor of self-death or assisted death, like, you know, like 38%. Sort of minimally church-going people, but who have a religion, are in favor of like 84%. And people with no religion are in favor of it for about 90%, high in the 90s. So even church-going, believing people, many of them would consider that as an option. Mm -hmm. And yet this, our state acts as if that would never, ever happen in our year. Wow. Can you talk a little bit about how you went about planning all that? Like what steps to take? You know, I wrote down a lot of these things and we had, we called it the Saunders Family Project. And we would have, usually it would be lunch or dinner or something. And then we would actually, I don't say we actually used flip charts, but it was pretty close to that. We would talk, we would, would take notes, we would, you know, get everybody's opinion on it. And then I sort of put it all together in a document. Mm -hmm. And then we looked for a lawyer to work with and we interviewed three geriatric care lawyers. And two of them clearly were just not interested in anything unusual. They had the form for geriatric care and that's about what they wanted to do. But this one lawyer that we found eventually, he was completely in with it and wanted to help us achieve that. And so this took two years, this process of talking and planning. And we found out about assisted death and the legal status in the United States. And I read a lot about that. And so at the end of the two years, we had lots of ideas and lots of written things. And then Peter and I went to the lawyer and we drew up, you know, last will and testament, but we revised it completely in the light of this. And we made each of our adult children, including our in-law children, are a power of attorney for me. Mm -hmm. or will have and we put a lot of things in their names so that you know it would not be a horrible thing if suddenly something happened and of course Peter is here and he's perfectly capable of dealing with it but 
there may be reasons for grief or an exhaustion or whatever that he, you know, that he would want help putting something together. So we, we did that and then we all went to the lawyer. My daughter and her husband were living in Chicago, but they, they came in by Skype. And we all sat around the table and we discussed it. And then he explained the documents to them. And then he and I signed it. And we actually, there's a radio organization in Salt Lake City who makes films. Mm-hmm. And the lawyer was even open to us bringing a videographer in and filming that. And to me, it's an incredibly precious thing to look at again, to see my kids with tears in their eyes, sometimes, sometimes laughing out loud being willing to be there for me and Peter in that way. Yeah. It brings tears to my eyes just thinking about it. (laughs) Well, I feel very blessed to be able to talk to you about this, especially your life and your plan. I know that it's a very difficult conversation for others, but I feel like the Saunders project, like you said, has helped, you know, you and your family be able to educate others so that, for me, it makes me know that I'm not crazy or alone out thinking, Yes, thinking, you know, okay. now when I get married, just having my future husband sign that agreement. Yeah. Well, something else about our project is that we started it and when oldest grandchild was probably three or so and the other one a baby and the last one was not yet born. And we spoke about this in family discussions in front of them. They picked up that vocabulary like they picked up nursery rhymes and other family sayings. And so we've been able to talk to them at each age. They understand it in a different way. And at some age, they are upset by it. But when they get older and they understand more, and my oldest grandson is 12 now, and he and I went to see the movie Black Panther. Okay. And with him. And I wasn't sure that he was old enough, but, you know, we're willing to risk that. And if he couldn't deal with it, then we'd walk out. But anyway, so after that, in the movie, in the last scenes, the sort of anti-hero commits suicide because he's been injured in a battle. He has a sword sticking into his heart. And the person who stuck the sword in his heart uh, says, you know, we can cure you. In our civilization, we have the technology to cure you. And then he said, why would I want to be cured just to be a slave? Mm-hmm. And so when we, after the movie, Kanye said to me, Oh, are you a little bit like, I can't remember the guy's name, because you also don't want to just keep living, but you can't do anything you want to do. Wow. Which is, I think, incredibly perceptive. Yes. For an 11-year-old. And also, <laughs> the funny part of it, he's very scientific and reads all kinds of things in science and and he was reading a book about how murderers have committed murder so he said to me one day he said i read this in this book there's a thing called arsenic and you you take it you'll just die within you know a few minutes (laughs) and you know so amazing and absolutely intended as you know, a kind and cool thing to say to me. Of course, it it was amazing. We told the story in the family. We were just laughing so much about it. But also, I've wanted just to hug him. I did. Yeah. Children, they're a lot smarter than we probably give them credit. And if we're not teaching them to be fearful of death, but educating them 
it's what we need. It's how we, we can start to move the needle in the direction where people will have that tough conversation at a younger age with their parents and at least saying, what do you want? You know, what are your wishes? Because everybody wants to talk about when they're dead, but nobody wants to talk about when they're living. And then what do you do when you can't take care of yourself? And you all have done that. So I applaud y'all. It warms my heart. I'm so blessed to have have met you and be able to interview you. So I'm at a loss for words. (laughs) Your story is amazing. (laughs) Thank you so much. I just have one more thing to say about it. So I want to talk about our culture's image of what people with dementia look like. Okay. That image, they think of people with dementia as zombies. Mm -hmm. And I myself agree and can see that people with dementia often resemble the characteristics of zombies in sort of walking out aimlessly and, you know, and also I read a lot about this and, and some people said, and they even eat their families up alive, you know, and so on. So there are many characteristics. I don't suggest everybody talks like that, but that is the image. So I want to tell people that if you are diagnosed early, it's very fortunate because often if you have a particular skill that you've practiced your whole life, very often you won't be able to brush your teeth but you can still practice that skill. Yeah. And you mentioned that for your mother, that skill is tennis. Yes. And for me, that skill was introspection and writing. And I've done that as a, a teacher, as a writer, and just even as young as high school, I studied four languages. I was absolutely immersed in languages. And so this is the thing that still works for me. Not always so well in conversation, but it still works for me so that I can write. And people, when they hear me talk or see me, they often, they think that I'm faking it. Oh. You know, you can see the incredulity. But they just have to spend a few hours in my company mm-hmm. and they will see what I mean. Yeah. I mean, there's not a day that goes by that I don't lose all confidence in myself about six or seven times when I just try and try and try to do something and I always do it wrong or I always get off track. And people, when they don't see that, they don't know what the problem is. But I'm sure you know too that in some situations, your mother could appear, you know, just maybe elderly, but still fine. And then in others, it's very, very clear that she cannot take care of herself. Yeah. Absolutely. And she gets frustrated. She doesn't want anybody to to clean her house, to wash her dishes. You know, she feels like she can get from A to B, but we know from her dents in the car that she can't and no longer should she even try. However, like you said, when there are people that she does not see on a regular basis and they come in interaction with her, they they like, oh no, she seems fine. Well, of course, but spend over a three hour period, if not more with her. And, you know, you can hear the frustration or if she's comfortable with you, she will ask the same question multiple times. And that's when you know, or she gets really quiet because she's uncomfortable and doesn't know what to say and cannot carry that conversation. So I'm so blessed. Again, thank you for visiting with me today and and sharing your story. If there's anyone that would like to get in touch with you or have more questions, how can they reach you? What's the best way? I have a website, which is my name, Gerda Saunders, 
com. Okay. And my contact information is there. And a lot of the information that I have found out over the years is there too. And then what I'm very grateful for, there's now five videos that, that those people have made me. They're four minutes long each and they are exquisitely made. And I just want to tell you that I'm very blessed to speak to you. It's not often that I find very reflective people who are in the game and who are willing to and can talk about it. And I really so much appreciate you. Well, thank you. It's a labor of love. And every time I speak to someone who's either going through it, has gone through it, and now you, who's living with this disease that more people need to be talking about. And hopefully, I know they're not going to find a cure. In my lifetime, you know, for you sharing your story can help others get educated and gives me hope too on so many different levels. So I, I really appreciate you. And, and thank you to everyone listening. If you know somebody who could use Hadas Sanders' story, please share this episode with them and be so kind as to rate the podcast platform that you're listening to it on. And last but not least, please, please, please to the families that have not have had that conversation with the, what if you can no longer take care of yourself and something happens, what are you going to do? What's your plan? Please have a conversation and take it from this daughter who has a mother with dementia. I wish I would have had that tough conversation because tomorrow is promised to no one. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much.